Let's just go right into our text, if you don't mind. So Acts chapter 18, uh, we're towards the end of that chapter, and we're going to get a little bit into chapter number 19 this morning. We've been in the book of Acts for a uh, few months, uh, this calendar year, so we're, we're getting about... We're getting there. I guess we're like two-thirds of the way there, so if we keep in score. The end of chapter 23, uh, I read last Sunday where Paul has made his way back, as verse 22 says, Acts 18, 22. Uh, he's made his way back to his home church, which is Antioch uh, in Syria. And then verse 23, we read that he spent some time there, back at his home church. But then just sort of... Without, a, uh, without further ado, we read of his third missionary journey uh, in that verse 23. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's gone back to where he went the first time and to where he went the second time. So now his third time, uh, he's traveling through that region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, sort of central modern-day Turkey region. And then at verse 24, uh, we read, the story picks up, because Paul has uh, left Ephesus on his previous journey. He told them he would come back there uh, when he is, is allowed to by the Lord. Verse 24, our text begins, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria in Egypt, a great center of learning in the ancient world and also of the Jewish community, came to Ephesus, this is on the very, uh, the, sort of the west, southwest coast of uh, modern-day Turkey. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, those are the ones that we heard about before with the apostle, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures of the Old Testament that the Christ, or the Messiah, was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, Galatia and Phrygia, and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way of the Lord Jesus, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles with the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 drachma, literally, pieces of silver, so 50,000 days of labor. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And to all these words, God's people say, Amen. So what do we mean when we say the word is powerful? What do we mean when we say the word is powerful? Think about that as we come to our text this morning. The word is powerful. What do we mean by that? Well, we know in our Bibles, we know that God created in the beginning all things. Children, how how did God create in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then it goes on to tell us how he did it. Do you remember what the the Bible says in Genesis 1? And God, there's a famous little refrain. And God, and God what, kids? Spoke, right? And God said, let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be seas, and so forth. God's words had creative power. In the beginning. And as God has continued to reveal himself throughout the ages to his people, he had that revelation of himself, that speech that he spoke in dreams at times, other times in still small voices, fingers upon walls or on tablets, in fire and cloud, all the ways that God revealed himself. He then had those creative words that revealed God written down for us in this book. The Old Testament, first of all, then secondly, the New Testament. And as God calls ministers and missionaries and pastors and, in a sense, all of us as believers to go and to preach the gospel, he sends us out with those scriptures, those recorded words of God that need to be proclaimed far and wide, as Jesus said, to be spread like a, like a sower spreading seeds upon the land. The same God who in the beginning spoke and it came to be 
The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father who has sent his Son, who has sent the Spirit to us. He's the same God who has now still the same power to save and to create, to recreate sinners like you and me. So when we say the word of God is powerful, what are we saying? We're saying God is powerful. And we're saying that God is powerful by using actual words. The words that are written for us to see with our eyes and to hear with our ears. The words that are spoken to us. It's not just the words on pages, but the words as they are proclaimed to us. The word of God is powerful. And we see that here in our passage this morning. The same creative God. The same God revealed himself. The same God who spoke and people obeyed. He still speaks. He still speaks. And he still speaks with great power to recreate dead, lifeless sinners into alive in Christ. Saints and believers. And I want you to see that this morning, that the word of God is powerful. And uh, that'll be our big idea here, the big theme here in these, uh, these words. It's sort of a, a strange division of the passage. You probably might be thinking that. You know, there's a paragraph there at the end of chapter 18, and then two more paragraphs here at the beginning of chapter number 19. Uh, and even this week, I was, uh, I was tempted to just skip over to verse 21 and get to uh, the exciting stuff of the things that you know, seem to make a little bit more sense. This great riot at Ephesus. But in these three little events, these three scenes here, we have Apollos, we have these 12 believers who hadn't yet been baptized, and we have these exorcists and this demon. These three strange accounts in Ephesus reveal to us the power of the word. The power of of the word. We've already seen this theme, but we see it again. The power of the word. Again, meaning the power of God. And in the book of Acts, in particular, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. How is the word powerful? By means of the Holy Spirit. It's he who inspired the word to be written on, in, on pages in the first place. And it's he who sends missionaries like the Apostle Paul. And it's he who gives his words to be spoken. And it's he who gives life to those words to make sense to ears and to transform hearts. So we, we really see the power of the Holy Spirit, but we'll say the power of the word. The power of the word. Notice, first of all, in that first scene, at the very end of chapter number 18, uh, you, you have the power of the word here, even through an imperfectly trained evangelist. Even when someone proclaims the word and they have yet to be fully instructed in the ways of God. God is powerful. The Holy Spirit can still reach down out of heaven into the heart of a sinner and bring people to salvation. And you see that with Apollos. We see that he's described with various little descriptive terms, an eloquent man, you see that. He was, as he says, he was competent, or as the King James says, he was mighty, he was powerful in the scriptures. Meaning he could explain them, he knew them, he could explain them, and he could apply them. In fact, he was described, he's described here as one instructed in the way of the Lord. 
Katakamenos is the, the verb here. It's the, the verb from which we get our English word catechized. We have our Heidelberg Catechism, kids. Our, our catechism, uh, that, uh, that word a, is a Bible word. It's a biblical word. Catechism, or to be catechized, to be instructed. Or to catechize, to instruct. He was one who had been instructed or he had been catechized in the way of the Lord. Someone down in Alexandria had taught him the gospel and had begun to instruct him more and more in the ways of the Lord. Being an eloquent man, being a man who was very powerful, very knowledgeable in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, he was probably marked out very early as one who was going to be a candidate for the ministry. But he had to be instructed. He had to be catechized. We might, we might say, and uh, our whole cadre of interns aren't here, but uh, we have our brother Michael, so I guess he's our, he's our little guinea pig this morning. But this, this would be like a seminary student. Uh, I even think of myself as I, as I read this story of Apollos. Not a very eloquent man, but uh, one who was uh, uh, seemingly uh, interested in and uh, somewhat competent in the Scriptures. I remember being a 17, 18-year-old convert uh, and being asked by uh, my Foursquare church to lead a Bible study on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. 18 years old. I read the Bible a couple times by the time I was like 18 years old. Uh, the whole thing, kids, the whole thing, front to back, a couple of times. And so I was very eager and very competent, or at least they thought so, uh, very, very knowledgeable, very interested, we might say, uh, in the Bible, in the Word of God. And so they said, well, you, you know, you, you should teach a Bible study. We, we need a, someone to teach us about the Holy Trinity. And here was an 18-year-old kid who had just barely been baptized in the Trinity, the name of the Trinity, teaching on that doctrine. Well, I really need to be more fully instructed. This man was fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. You see there in the, on the sermon notes page the, uh, the, uh, the word in Greek, zeo, uh, comes into English as uh, we say enthusiastic or zesty. He was very zesty in spirit. Very lively in spirit. So he was very eloquent. He was very knowledgeable. He was very zealous in spirit. And he taught accurately, we read there, the things concerning Jesus. Though he only knew the baptism of John, that, that baptism that was preparatory for the coming of the Messiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He baptized with a baptism of repentance. John the baptizer came and said, I baptize you with water, but there's one who's greater than I, whose sandal straps are not even worthy to untie. The one coming after me is going to baptize you in what? The Holy Spirit and fire. I give just water that's for you to confess your sins and prepare your hearts for the way of the Lord. But He is coming who is going to baptize you with the reality, the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last Sunday afternoon in our, in our catechism uh, sermon. We thought about the outward and the inward parts of baptism. The outward parts of the water, the inward part is all the stuff, the gospel, the Holy Spirit the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was very, very eloquent, very competent, very instructed, uh, very fervent, and he was a great teacher. He was teaching people actually the things concerning Jesus, although he was imperfectly trained. He still yet only knew that baptism of John. And then we read about Priscilla and Aquila. 
Paul had met them in Corinth back in chapter 18 at verse number 2. They were Jews who had actually grown up in Pontus on the south coast of the Black Sea, northern Turkey, today northern Turkey. But they had made their way to Rome, but Claudius, the emperor in 49 AD, had kicked out the Jews, and that meant also Christians, kicked them out, and so they made their way to Corinth, and they just happened to find their way to the Apostle Paul, and they then went along with the Apostle Paul as he made his way to Ephesus, and he let them stay in Ephesus. He left them behind while he went back home to Antioch. Now, this Apollos made his way from Alexandria, Egypt, to Ephesus, and lo and behold, they happened to meet Priscilla and Aquila. And they explained to him, as as they heard his teaching in the synagogue, they explained to him, notice, the way of God, verse 26, more accurately. More accurately. So even with all of Apollos' gifts, here we have Priscilla and Aquila, who we know from other little verses throughout the New Testament, very important uh, couple, very important in the Apostle Paul's life, we learned that they were a very godly, mature, well-versed in the Bible, the Old Testament, older believers who took under their wing this, this young, zesty, uh, excitable, knowledgeable young preacher, evangelist. And it just shows us the importance, brothers and sisters, the importance of, uh, of, of godly, mature believers, older believers especially, to take under their wing younger believers in our midst, and especially our seminary students. I think we've done a pretty good job of that in, in, our, in our 20 plus years. And uh, just to commend you, uh, young and old, but especially our older believers, to take under your wing our seminary students, their wives, their kids. Uh, they, they need, uh, we may not, you may not be able to teach them all the intricacies of uh, lapsarianism. You may not even know what that word means. And you don't need to know what it means. But you may not be able to instruct them in, in the very depths of Reformed theology, but you can certainly show them the way of the Lord and, a way in the, and that way of the Lord even more accurately to help raise them up and to see them go out and themselves be ready to equip and to train even others. So Apollos wanted to go from the southwest coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, in Ephesus. He wanted to cross over the Aegean Sea into Achaia, that Roman province of Achaia. Uh, what's the, what was the capital city again of, of Achaia? Here's the homework from last week. Corinth, right? Corinth. So, okay, Paul and Apollos are crossing paths here. They're crossing paths here. So he wanted to go to Corinth. Paul is leaving. He's going. They're, they're crossing paths. They're taking opposite ways to get there. And so they write a letter and they commend him. They send him. And notice he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. It's interesting, as as Paul has gone to Corinth, and he has been there for 18 months, and he was very successful in his ministry, the church began to thrive and, and to grow. We saw that last Sunday. And now he leaves, and Apollos, this, this even greater orator and powerful preacher, shows up,
And he greatly helped those who through grace, through Paul's preaching, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God had brought them to faith. He greatly helped those who believed. But how does Paul summarize the, his, his own ministry and then Apollos' ministry? I, this is one of those great verses that I, I think we probably know. Uh, if I begin to read it, I'm expecting you to recite it with me. Paul, as he writes to the, to, uh, to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, of course, there's great, great uh, division there. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. Right? Very, very, uh, very uh, uh, fragmented church. But then Paul goes on to ask this question. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos. God gave the increase. I planted the church in Corinth. I left after 18 months. Guess who showed up? Apollos. He was very powerful. He helped greatly those who, through grace, had believed. He watered what I planted. And did a great job of watering. But God, but God, gave the growth. Who are we? He says. Who are we? Mere vessels, mere instruments, servants. He later on describes himself as a, as, a, as a jar of clay. What do we have other than a jar of clay? We have this body that is nothing, and, but yet within it is housed the inestimable treasure of the gospel. I planted, he watered, but God, but God did the work. So the power you see here, the power of the preaching of the word, the power of Paul, the power of Apollos was not Paul or Apollos. Paul was the greatly trained rabbi. He was in line to be one of the great Pharisaical rabbis of the ancient world. Apollos, this this Alexandrian trained Jew, powerful in scripture. But God gave the growth. But God gave the growth. He greatly helped those who through grace had belief. Why? For he powerfully, we read there, or he very vigorously, he very fiercely refuted or defeated the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah, Christ, was Jesus. So again, even when he refutes and even when he argues and even when he destroys their arguments, notice why. Notice why. What's the reason why he was able to do that? By the scriptures. That the Messiah of the Old Testament was this Jesus. Was this Jesus. The power of refutation was the word. The power of conversion was the spirit. The power of anything is God. Who who is Paul? Who's Apollos? Mere servants. Mere servants through whom God chose to work. And so he showed by the scriptures that the Messiah was Jesus. Now, I would encourage you to write down and think about this this week. Which Old Testament passages would you go to to show that Jesus is the Messiah? He didn't. Luke, the writer, doesn't tell us which passage he went to. But we read here that from the Old Testament scriptures, Apollos showed that Jesus, the Messiah, was Jesus, or Jesus was the Messiah. 
Which passage would you go to? And I would just encourage you to think about these four, or four topics. I want you to find a passage for each of these. You need to be competent to be able to explain. Where in the Old Testament, and I'll give you a hint, way back when in the book of Genesis, does God describe the fact that there is going to be someday to come a Savior, one who is anointed, one who is set apart to save? Where do we see that in the, in the book of Genesis? What are you, chat GPT over here? You give me all the answers out. Come on, brother. <laughs> so we have in the, in the book of Genesis, if you didn't hear that, well, you've got to go find it yourself, somewhere where God says that there's going to be a Savior to come. Way back when. And in the Old Testament, there's a, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, but I'm just going to mention th- three more. So there are four. Where is there this one to come who's going to be the Savior? Where do we read in the Old Testament that there's going to be a an anointed prophet to come greater than Moses. Greater than Moses. Third, where in the Old Testament do we read about a priest to come greater than the priesthood of Aaron? That's somewhere in the Old Testament. And where do you read in the Old Testament of a king greater than, greater than, the greatest king of all, King David? Where's that prophecy found? I'll tell you next Sunday if you want to know, but uh, I want you to spend some time thinking about that. We need to be competent in Scripture to be able to show people, even refute, even as best we can try to convince from Scripture that Jesus is the promised Savior, but let God give the growth. Let God give So the word is powerful. We see that there, again, the conclusion of that little section. The power was by the scriptures, by the scriptures that the Holy Spirit had inspired. The power was the word. Secondly, uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter number 19, even when the disciples were very, very ignorant, God's word was powerful. And so Paul there in Ephesus, back to our text, he's there in Ephesus, and he happens to find some disciples. We read there there are about 12 of them. Twelve disciples, and, and he asks them, as maybe they're gathering together in public or in some kind of a meeting, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Just like in Acts 2, the crowds believed and the Holy Spirit came. No, you haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit. Well, then into what you're, were you baptized? John's baptism. Now, that phrase there that says we've never heard, or we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, well, relatively speaking, they knew of the Holy Spirit because they knew of John's baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, a baptism of water, but yet there was one to come who was going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So they knew of the Holy Spirit. The point that they are making, the point that Luke is making in the, in the recording of it, is that uh, they, were, they were not baptized in the, the authority of the Holy Spirit. To baptize our children and converts in the name of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the name of. The name of God speaks of His authority, His power, His lordship, His kingship. And to be baptized is to come underneath His power. To be named by God. To be claimed by God. To be owned by God. 
They were only baptized with a, with, a, with a water baptism that was of repenting of their sins and of confessing their sins and their, and their need of a Savior. They hadn't been baptized yet. They hadn't been claimed, at least outwardly speaking, in the sacraments. They hadn't been claimed by God. To have His name upon them, the name of the Father who's made all things, the name of the Son who redeems the name of the Holy Spirit who comes upon us and fills us and baptizes us. That's what they meant there by saying we've not even heard the Holy Spirit. We didn't know that we we're supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now when it says that he baptized them in the name of, uh, uh, in the name of Jesus, he lays hands upon them and they, uh, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, the, the Lord Jesus, that's the cue there. It's not saying that baptism is supposed to be only in Jesus' name because Jesus himself, who is the Lord, said in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Luke says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that language of Lord is showing us the meaning. To be baptized is to, be, to come under the lordship of the king. And by emphasizing Jesus, who is the Lord, who is the king, that's what he's showing there. They hadn't yet been baptized in the baptism that Jesus gave his disciples to go out in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They believed. They certainly believed. They're called disciples here. But they'd only been baptized with that preparation baptism, not Christian baptism, not Jesus' baptism that he gives, that he gives. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus, because he gives baptism. He's the Lord. He's the King. And so he takes these disciples along with him. Notice that. He goes into a synagogue for three months. He speaks boldly. He reasons. He persuades with them about the kingdom of God. And when there was great consternation, of course, again, he withdraws from that synagogue and he took the disciples with him. And then every day he's now in the hall of Tyrannus, this philosopher of Ephesus and these outward, out, outdoor uh, courts and porches and porticos that would have been out there teaching. And with, for two years, he was doing this with those disciples. Notice that. These disciples had, been with the, had now been with him all along. The whole time. The whole time. Why? Because as, as, a, as disciples, we are followers of Jesus. We follow him wherever he wants us to go. We need to grow, in other words. We need to grow in him. And Paul knew that, and so he takes them along with him as he teaches, as he preaches, and no doubt they, after the fact, sort of had debriefing sessions, you know, like, like I and my seminary students like to do, you know, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right, of every single sermon. Uh, how'd you do, and how'd it go, and what'd you think, and that, kind of, that sort of thing. But he was doing it to teach them to, that they would grow. That they as disciples would grow. And notice how they were growing. Again, it was the word. It was the word. He takes them along with him while he teaches in the synagogue from Scripture. He keeps them with him for two straight years as he's teaching from the word of God in the hall of Tyrannus. He wants them to grow. The key to your growth, brothers and sisters, yes, is following Jesus. Yes, it's being submitted to the Holy Spirit. But how, do we, but how do we do that? How do we show that we follow Jesus? How do we show that we submit our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit? The Word. 
the words. Certainly, inwardly, we can, we can mentally and spiritually and inwardly, we can humble ourselves and, 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 and give ourselves to Jesus and, and call upon the Holy Spirit to, to lead us and guide us. But he does that through his words. It's the word that the Spirit uses to sanctify us and to give us growth and to cause us to become more and more mature as disciples. So even when these disciples are very, very ignorant, they don't even know of the baptism that our Lord Jesus Christ commanded in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, especially mentioned here. Yet the word continues to grow. Notice, for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Is there anything there that, sound, that, sounds, uh, that, that sticks out to you? All the residents of Asia? Have you read about Asia before in Acts? Where? Go back to chapter 16 just for a, just for a second. This is very, very, again, very, very interesting. Paul and Silas are traveling, uh, the second missionary journey now, traveling through the region, verse 6, through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, that's the same region that he's now here in chapter 18, the end of chapter 18, he's been traveling around. Now he comes down to Ephesus. Beforehand, they had been there. Notice, why were they in Phrygia and Galatia? Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Paul wanted to go there. And I mentioned this before. He wanted to go there. He couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't get to Asia, this, 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 this southwestern region of that of that uh, of modern day Turkey, that, that region of the Roman Empire. He couldn't go there. We saw that the path he took was all the way up to Troy to Troas to get to Macedonia. But notice, eventually, you know, maybe we're still confused about why the Holy Spirit would say, No, you can't preach in a certain place. No, you can't go there. Because in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, in his time and his leading and his guiding, he had a time for Asia. It just wasn't then. That time, and notice, that time has begun. Paul makes his way to Ephesus, and now Apollos makes his way to Ephesus, and Paul is, is there again. As he said, he would go if the Lord would will it, and the Lord willed it. And finally, the prayer that he had, the desire that he had, uh, the, the plan that he had in chapter 16, it begins now in the Holy Spirit's sovereign power to come to fruition so that all Asia, notice, heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And do you know what other cities are in that region of Asia that heard the word? We're not told here, but we know from the other parts of the New Testament. If we pull our Bibles out and we look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters of the seven churches of Revelation, where are those letters, where are those churches located at? Right here. Right here in the region of Asia. Paul's ministry in Apollos, his ministry in Ephesus, 
now begins to fulfill the timing that God had to spread the word, to spread the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this thirdly. We see the power of the word of God even when demonic activity manifests itself. Verse 11, down to the end of our text, just briefly. Even when demonic activity manifests. Now Paul's doing great power here. God is doing great power through Paul. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Evil spirits were being exercised. People were being healed just by touching handkerchiefs. And I mentioned last Sunday when we read that passage in our our second service, extraordinary miracles. It's as if Luke wants us this to, uh, 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 Luke wants us to, to take, to take, To be attentive to what he says here. Miracles by nature are miraculous. They're stupendous. They're things that God does. But they are called here. He's heaping up words. These are extraordinary miracles. Powers of God. It's not for us to take handkerchiefs and sell them online. Okay? I think... Capiche, right? Is that we understand that? Comprende, right? Extraordinary miracle. Miracles are miracles. These are above and beyond, we might say, miracles. Through the hands of the Apostle Paul. These are this is not meant for us to repeat. And preachers have their little sweat handkerchiefs and they, you know, do it and they, they sell them. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. God was doing the work. It just happened to be that this was the means that he used. This is very extraordinary means. Very strange sounding means to us. But that's what it was. Now as he was doing this, or as God was doing it, through him, and notice again, the word is always accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And the, the, and the miracles, and the signs, and the wonders, and the extraordinary powers of God are always accompanying the words. He's not just walking around, dabbing his forehead and throwing it out of the ground. Right? This is not a concert, you know, where the, uh, where the, where the singer rips off his shirt, swings it in the air and throws it out. You know, whoever grabs it, you know, gets, gets the shirt. These are all meant to confirm the gospel. They're meant to show that what he is saying is absolutely true. And then there are these seven sons There's a Jewish high priest who's there uh, uh, in the region, and he has seven sons, and they are itinerant exorcists, as they were uh, uh, known to have in those days. Itinerant exorcists. And And they're seeing this Saul of Tarsus, this Paul, they're seeing what's happening, and and they're, and they're watching it, but they're also hearing it as, no doubt he was saying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out, and they were coming out. And they thought, uh, just like we saw with Simon Magus back in September 8th, that they could, he thought he could buy the Holy Spirit, and here they think they can mimic the Holy Spirit. And so they're going around, and, and notice how they're saying it. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They know nothing of Jesus. They don't even believe in him. They think that the name of Jesus is like having a little rabbit's foot dangling down off of your, off of your, uh, your, your mirror in your car. Um, 
I don't know how it is in, in every Latin American co- uh, co- country, but in Brazil, they have open Bibles on their dashboards. Even the biggest rank pagan has a Bible on his dashboard in his car because that's their way of, of sort of having the magic talisman. If I just have a Bible open on my dashboard, God is going to see that and be happy with me. But I can, I can be a narco-terrorist, right? And I can have an open Bible and I'm good to go. That's not how Jesus works. You can't run around saying the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I adjure you, I command you to come out. No, that's not how it works. And you, and you see the outcome of that. The Spirit says, who are you? I know Jesus, I know Paul, who are you? This one man overcomes seven of them. You can imagine how strong he was by the power of the demon. This became known, notice. And I want you to see this. Why are all these miracles happening? Notice there's a lot of fame here. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hype, we might say. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, uh, stirring going on. Everyone is hearing this. That Paul's going around. People are being healed just by touching his clothes. Or clothes that just touched him. And they're hearing about this demonically possessed man who had overcome these seven popular itinerant evangelists. And so everyone knows this in the region of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon all of them. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so the, 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 the outcome notice, the evidence of conversion was their lives being changed. These were magicians. These were tarot card readers. These were necromancers. These were those who prayed to the dead. These were those who thought that they can see ghosts and demons and tell you what your dead grandparent was wanting you to know coming back from the dead. They were doing all these ancient practices that we see today. Thinking that by these things they could touch the world that is unseen to us, but yet they, they were converted. And the evidence was that they took their books, their magic books, all the things that taught them these ways of Satan, and they burned them in the sight of all. 50,000 pieces of silver. As I mentioned, 50, one drachma was the silver coin that was a day's wages for the average worker. 50,000 day. I didn't calculate it. My wife's not here. She's a mathematician. It's 50,000 divided by 365. What's that? I mean, it's a lot, right? It's a, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of cost. 50,000 days of work all up in smoke. Why? Because the word of the Lord is powerful. Notice that phrase, verse 20. That's the conclusion to the whole thing, but this event especially. Again, why are all the miracles happening? Why are, why are all these powers and signs and wonders happening? The word of the Lord, Jesus, continued to increase and prevail mightily. What is it about the signs? It's not about the handkerchiefs. It's not about the miracles. This is not a, this is not a, a paradigm. This is not a text for uh, the kinds of things that, uh, that I was taught in as a Pentecostal. Power evangelism. If we would just do this stuff, people would come to faith. It's not about all that stuff. Notice, it's the Word. The Word continued to increase. The miracles didn't. The signs didn't. The handkerchief stopped. Eventually, Paul left after two years. The Word 
continued to increase and prevail mightily. And though this world with devils filled, we sing, Luther wrote, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, meaning Christ, shall fell him. The word is powerful, loved ones, because it's the word of Christ. When we read our Bibles, when we hear the Bible proclaimed, when we listen to preaching, when we take it to heart, the power of Christ by his Holy Spirit invades our lives and transforms us from the inside out. Amen? And so, let us continue to be and never cease to be people of the book, people of the word. May the word increase in our lives, the life of our church. Let's pray. Our great God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us these uh, stories of the power of the gospel. And so encourage our hearts today to know that it's you who work. Who are we? We are nothing. We are mere servants through whom you have chosen to work at your assigned place for your assigned time. And so give us confidence then to share the gospel, knowing that it's your gospel, it's your word, it's your work, it's your power. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our lives every day with opportunities to share these powerful words. Fill this place with sinners saved by grace. And the church across the world, Lord, revive it, reform it, renew it, restore it. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's sing out to the Lord together and uh, prepare our minds and hearts to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper.